The last time I saw Dorothy was at my mother's funeral over 25 years ago. Dorothy couldn't find the words, or at least didn't appear to have them, as she approached myself, my father, my two sisters, and the receiving line after the funeral. And just overcome with emotion, she wept openly and embraced me for one of the longest hugs that I can remember. And by that point in the day, I thought that I had cried out all the tears that I had, but there was something about Dorothy's completely unrestrained expression of compassionate grief that burst a dam in me once again. And then Dorothy left without really saying anything, and I haven't seen her since. So let me give you a little bit of context. I understand that's important about who I knew Dorothy to be. For most of the decade before that, 1992 is the year of my mom's funeral, Dorothy was a 70-something African-American woman who worked for my family, cleaning our house at least once or twice a week. I have nothing but fond memories of Dorothy. And I always had a sense that she really cared about our family. And we never had anything but the most pleasant interactions. But I never really knew how she felt about my family until it was after she had retired that she came to my mom's funeral. Didn't expect to see her. And she had this really overwhelmingly powerful expression of grief. And I got a sense of what my mom, our family, meant to her. And so now, with the benefit of hindsight... Over a quarter century later, this is what I am most aware of. How much Dorothy knew and how much she cared for my family. And truly how little I knew of her life. Now, when I say that, what I want to be clear is I had no right to know anything about her life. But I am aware that I didn't know much. Dorothy, this past week when I was working on today's message, this message, Roma, about spirit flicks, the series that we do about the stories we see on screens that we're digging into and finding deeper meaning out of, Dorothy was in my mind and even more on my heart because the story of Roma is about this person, Cleo. a live-in domestic worker for an upper-middle-class family in Mexico, particularly the Roma neighborhood of Mexico City, around the years 1970-1971. This story centers on Cleo, her experiences, her life. Now, Alfonso Caron is the filmmaker. He won Best Director for this movie. He's made some of those powerful movies I've seen in the last decade. Gravity, Um, Children of Men, which to me is the most powerful retelling of the Christmas story I have seen since the original Christmas story was told. Alfonso Caron said this about why he made this movie. He said, it was probably my own guilt about social dynamics, class dynamics, racial dynamics. I was a white, middle-class Mexican kid living in this bubble. I didn't have a wider awareness. 
I had what your parents tell you, that you have to be nice to people who are less privileged than you and all that, and et cetera, et cetera. But he said, truly, I was in my own childhood universe. Now, I love the way that Afonso Caron talks about why he made this movie and he dedicated it to the memory of the woman who looked after him when he was growing up. I love this, what he said, for a couple of different reasons. You know, in this age of really ugly, awful, resurgent American U.S. nationalism, you know, so many people, millions, sadly, of our fellow U.S. citizens hear that word Mexico and they think of just one thing or one kind of person. And what I love with Alfonso Caron says, no, 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 no. <laughs> Mexico is not a monolith and neither are Mexicans. We have our own struggles with divisions between us and oppressions within our own society. What I love even more next to that awareness is this. He made this movie to bust out of that childhood universe of what he wasn't aware of to enlarge his own heart. Now, how many of you have seen this movie? Quite a lot. Yeah. So if you haven't seen it, this is my very quick review. Um, This is not the help. (laughs) This is not a movie that seemingly is about, quote unquote, other people people who worked and lived as domestics like the movie The Help is supposed to be about or the book, which really centers on the lives of white people and makes white folks the heroes in that story. This is Cleo's story. It centers on her. Her joys, her struggles, her heartbreaks, how her life is going. The really fascinating thing about how this movie is made is that it occurs within a household. And it's a household in which a lot of change is happening. And yes, we see the experiences of the adults, besides Cleo, and we see the experiences of the four children in this household. But when things happen in this household, you know whose perspective predominates the most? It's Cleo's. It is her story. Now, this movie is in black and white, and it is very much what I would call an art film. It is beautiful to look at. And for most of it, it is very, very quiet. This is not a summer blockbuster. And yet, it got all kinds of accolades, nominations, one best picture for Alfonso Cuaron. And whenever a movie like this kind of busts out and makes an impression like this, kind of how like Moonlight did a few years ago and it tells a different kind of story. I always want to ask what that might reflect about who we are as a culture becoming. What might be changing for us? And I think it's about this. Why this movie got so much notice. Because I think it really pushes back on this thing that so many of us grew up with, whether we believe it should be true or not. This phrase. History is, wi- is written by the winners. That's the world I grew up in. History was written by the winners. We don't have to believe this should be normatively true, that it should be true, to say that it is so often descriptively true. That the official stories got told by the people with the most power who came out on top. 
And yet one of the most powerful things of being alive right now, for all the stuff that sucks about being alive right now, and there's a lot of sucky stuff, one of the most powerful things about being alive right now is this. At least in my 49 years on this earth, there has never been a time in which there is a wider availability and telling of stories from and by people whose stories have not been told. At this time of being alive, there is a questioning of that logic, that history, the official story, is told by the winners. This is a big matter for a faith tradition like our own, for our universalism. It's a huge matter because it pushes back on something that is the exact opposite of Unitarian Universalism. It's another ism, a worst ism. It's triumphalism. That it's only the winners that count. It's only the winners whose perspective matter. See, if we exist in a kind of triumphalist worldview, then the goal is not connection. The goal is conquest. To win at all costs. The opposite is our universalism. The core of this tradition that says there is a love so special that we do not need to be special to be loved. Now, please hear me on this. I know at times, because I've had it reflected back to me, that this is misunderstood. I'm not saying you're not special. (laughs) You're very special. And (laughs) our capacity to be beloved as human beings has absolutely nothing to do with that. Or at least it should have nothing to do with that. And in fact, in our culture, and our society, it has too much to do with how special, how much power we are perceived to hold. There is a love so special that we do not have to be special to be loved. I don't know for you, but for me, this is a saving message, especially in those moments in which I do not feel particularly good about myself, in which I do not feel that I am achieving all the things I should have achieved. And I've achieved a lot. But that's the logic of that. You know, the more you achieve, the more you want to achieve, unless there's something that kind of counterbalances that out. And the greatest counterbalancing force to that, that I know of, is love. Our universalism that says that all of us are important. And especially, this is the social implication of universalism, especially those most likely to be left out or left behind. Especially if in some ways you are like me and occupy certain positions of power. In universalism, our goal is not conquest. It is connection. It is reminding ourselves at times to let certain lessons seep into our hearts and break our hearts open. I think of a particular phrase that I didn't grow up in in the theological tradition I grew up in, but it was in the wider um, so in the wider world, it's this phrase, there but for the grace of God go I. Now, I want to be clear again to not be misunderstood about this. I do not mean there, but there before the grace of God go I. I do not mean this. 
We are the world. Band-Aid. Famine relief for Ethiopia. Do you remember this line that Bono sang? Oh, God, it still makes me cringe. (laughs) Tonight, thank God it's them instead of you. (laughs) Bono, buddy, you're doing it wrong. (laughs) If that's your prayer... It's certainly not a universalist one. And actually, I give the guys credit, all the people who put this song together for the 30th anniversary that they put out of the song. They redid that line. They recognized how awful it was. (laughs) But there, but for the grace of God go I, I think has a deeper meaning, a deeper invitation. There is nothing so special about my life or my position That I couldn't have been born in some other place in some other time and experienced struggles unlike the ones that I know. When I was in divinity school many years, I became familiar with a guy named John Rawls, who some of you might know. He had a a really great thought experiment about how we might like to have our relationships structured in this culture. And he had a little thought experiment that he called the veil of ignorance. He said, you know, if we're trying to come up with the best arrangements we can imagine around justice and liberty and compassion and right relationship in a culture, he said we should make those decisions behind a veil of ignorance in which we have no idea who we're going to be in that society before we actually end up in that society. (laughs) It asks us, imagine that you could be anyone And then strive to understand what justice, compassion, equity might be for any of us and all of us. This is one of the reasons I love this movie. Is that integrated throughout it is this question. The most powerful moment in this film for me, and by powerful I also mean painful, is when Cleo's life, it's really the most action-oriented segment in this movie, it lasts for about 15 or 20 minutes, is caught up in the political turmoil. The late 60s, early 70s was happening in Mexico, was happening here. And she is pregnant. And her water breaks. And because of that political turmoil, she is not able to get access to medical care for what we believe to be Hours and hours and hours, and it is excruciating. And then her baby is stillborn. And we see this from her perspective. We see the doctors who are trying to care for her, but give her like a minute maybe with her baby after she wants to hold her baby being stillborn. It is very powerful. And it is her story. And it is a corrective to something modern science, sociology, social work, anthropology, but also ancient scriptures tell us. The more of a position of social power that we tend to occupy, the less likely we are to really see others' lives. It's been demonstrated over and over and over again. And I do, at this point, want to give a shout out to Rodney um, for his beautiful story that you shared about your friend. 
Because the truth is, fathers are present in this story too, but it's a different story. And it is true for many people on Father's Day, but just harder to talk about. This story is shouted by two absent fathers. That's not going to go on many greeting cards. I'm sorry your heart is broken this Father's Day. But the truth is, that is the truth for many people. And so I wanted to lift that up as well today. Part of the willingness to move beyond our capacity to see only the hallmark version of reality is what this movie is about. And it is why I mentioned what I just did. For those people for whom Father's Day, rather than bringing happy memories or glad tidings, brings heartbreak and hurt and anger and grief. This is what our universalism asks us. To make space for the stories that are not the official stories, but the stories that invite us to widen and open our hearts. I think my most single favorite, I've got a lot of favorite single favorite teachers, but I think the single most favorite single favorite (laughs) teacher is Tara Brock, psychologist and Buddhist teacher. And she offers up some really skillful ways, as is her way, to work with this sense of maybe we've got this limited winner's view of reality on life and maybe we want to enlarge it. She's got two things from two different books that I love to connect. One is what she calls special person syndrome. (laughs) And she identifies this within herself. I mean, within the circles that Tara Brock travels, she's BFD. And she recognizes for herself that when she gets into that special person syndrome, it's like, you know, she goes to the retreat center and they don't have exactly what she had wanted. You know, it's not like take out all the green M&Ms from the Aerosmith story and all that. But it's kind of like she's got her own version of that. She sees that moment when the special person syndrome shows up for her and she sees herself elevated and she wants all of reality to conform to her wishes. (laughs) But in fact, she has to remember, and this is the heart of her teaching, no single person is the center of all reality because the heart of reality is relationship. And that calls her back to a different way of being. And calls her to another teaching of hers, which she calls the unreal other. We know we are participating in unreal othering. When we tell stories about other people's lives, based on our preconceptions of who they are rather than an accurate understanding of their lives. This is where our universalism matters to not make objects of each other because none of us are. Our universalism matters at the highest level in terms of the policies of this society, especially right now. Our universalism matters in our most intimate and sometimes even accidental connections with each other. That's the story I want to end with today. Some of you might know this story or seen it on social media. It's Lenora Kopelman. She made it public. So you can go and read the whole story. It goes on for paragraph after paragraph after paragraph. I'm going to give you a summation of it right now. 
Lenore and her husband brought their son. Their son, who is autistic, his name is Ralph, to Universal Studios. And he was as excited for this as he could possibly be. And specifically, one ride, one amusement. It was the Spider-Man thing that I know absolutely nothing about other than there, it exists at Universal Studios. And the way I guess the park is structured is that you have to go through a whole bunch of other things before you get to the attraction of the Spider-Man ride. And so it was like, you know, his Ralph's uh, enthusiasm was getting more and more and more and more amped up as they went through the day. And then finally they were there at the Spider-Man attraction and they were online and he is just as happy and as giddy as can be. And then they make the announcement that something on the ride has broken and needs inspection and so they're shutting the ride down. And they please ask everyone to orderly leave the area and perhaps they'll be able to ride again later today or some other day. And Ralph loses his shit. <laughs> Again, this is overwhelming for him. Remember, he is autistic. This is the way that he processes the world, which is different than the way I process the world and the way many of us process the world. He was upset. He was heartbroken. And his parents tried to explain to him that this happens. But in that moment, he wasn't hearing it. And so he fell down on the ground and started sobbing and started crying and started screaming. And Lenora Koppelman tells the story that as other people were flying around them, being careful not to step on Ralph, but also shooting them that look. Like, what's wrong with your kid? Take care of him. And they're trying to lift Ralph up, which of course only makes it worse, right? And then someone from the park, a park worker named Jen comes along, who doesn't try to lift Ralph up off the ground, but does this. She doesn't even say anything. She just lays there on the ground next to Ralph. As he cries out his disappointment and his frustration and his pain. And she does the most basic elemental thing that we talk about every week at Wellsprings. She breathes with him. And eventually, Ralph, recognizing that he is safe, he is able to soothe himself. And his crying stops. Lenore posted this story as a testament to Jen. For her powerful, compassionate witness. For her not projecting the story of, come on Ralph, let's move it onto him. But was able to simply be with him down on the ground, down to earth. The Latin word for the earth is humus, the dirt, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, 
most basic stuff. From whom us we get humility. The capacity each of us has to be down to earth. Not flying above. From whom us we get human. Entering into our full humanity. Down to earth. Touching the ground. The capacity to touch each other. Our humanity. Our universalism. Our connection. May we all realize it as best as we are able today. Amen. May you live in blessing. I'm just going to stay here right now. (laughs) I didn't hear what you said. Connect with me after. (laughs) Would you pray with me? God, of this very moment, of this very breath, this breath common to each and every one of us. This breath that connects us, that animates us, that is here at our birth and here at our death. This breath that can ground us. And in our grounding, help us find and refind that love and that connection that all of us want. And that all of us have to offer. Amen. And now I got to get up so the band can come up. <laughs>